You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay. On today's episode, we are joined by Penny Moyers, who was the inaugural program director of graduate programs in occupational therapy at the University of Indianapolis, where she is currently a professor. Um, Penny is a previous president of the American Occupational Therapy Association, has numerous national publications and research presentations to her credit, and was featured in the 100 Influential People in Occupational Therapy's History. Penny, you've contributed to leadership development, advocated for occupational therapy and legislation, and progressed work in the area of practitioner continued competence, to name a few of your contributions to our field. We are so excited to be speaking with you today, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. Of course, I'm excited to be involved. And you shared some exciting news with me just a little bit ago, Penny, about uh, this being your last year teaching. Um, Certainly as a full-time faculty member, but I plan to stay involved with some adjunct teaching at some various universities. So that way I can pick and choose what I do. That is awesome. And those universities are going to be lucky to continue to have your contributions. Yeah, I think so. Well, today, Penny, we want to discuss shared decision-making. So I thought it'd be a good idea to start by introducing the topic And I want to ask you right off the bat, what is shared decision-making? Well, I usually put the word patient or client in front of that because there is a type of shared decision-making among staff and leadership. So we're not talking about that. What we are talking about is how clinicians, occupational therapists in particular, engage their patients or clients in a decision-making process that's really involves informed consent. So it's a part of evidence-based practice, actually. And if you look at the definition of evidence-based practice, it includes uh, the use of best evidence as well as practitioner experience in addition to patients' values and preferences So patient shared decision-making is about recognizing the patient's values and preferences before you implement intervention so that they can choose what fits their needs the best after you've prevented them with the evidence. I love that. We also on this podcast are big proponents for evidence-based practice. Um, And I want to ask a lot of the I guess, principles or approaches of patient shared decision-making sound similar to to client or patient-centered care. How would you say shared decision-making is is different from client-centered care? Well, I'm actually kind of thinking about that. Um, There are differences, but I really think that client-centered care could be an umbrella approach since it's so strongly a part of the philosophical base for occupational therapy. And our literature really tends to interpret that as meaning involving the patient in setting their therapy goals. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of literature about how to make the entire therapy process beyond that to be client-centered. 
Whereas patient shared decision-making is about reviewing evidence so that the patient can ultimately select the best evidence-based intervention approach. And you can do that as a, after you do goal setting. And you can do that when you're picking out the intervention approach and the schedule for the approach. And anytime you're modifying your treatment plan, as well as when you're implementing a discharge plan. So that's sort of the differences. But if you look at the definition of client-centered care, it really isn't clear about including evidence. Okay. I, I love that explanation. I think that really clears things up and, and presents shared decision-making as a way to apply evidence-based practice along with client-centered care yeah. um, throughout the whole OT process. Yes, I would agree. That's really what we need to be able to do as clinicians. How, how would you describe occupational therapy's role in shared decision-making? Well, this is emerging. It's kind of come out of medicine and nursing and has been adopted in those two uh, disciplines. So it's not clear what the role of occupational therapy is or should be. Because when you look at the medicine's view of that, it's usually about selecting surgery or selecting drug intervention. And they're usually presenting results of drug trials and things like that. In OT, we have different areas where we want to share decision-making with our clients. And we also use a variety of evidence and not drug trials. So it's a little bit different. And so therefore, it hasn't been well-developed in our profession like it has in medicine. Nursing is a little bit further than occupational therapy, and OT and PT are probably at the same rate of developing the roles for this. So I would say that the role of the occupational therapy is really use this approach when, first of all, you have good evidence, which we don't for everything we do. And then second of all, when it's clear that the decision-making process could be somewhat controversial for the patient such as making a transition from home to um, assisted living or skilled nursing um, facilities or deciding when not to drive, deciding when cognition is such that you need more caregiver involvement. And those decisions are tough on patients and families and therefore could benefit from an evidence-based approach to making those decisions. Absolutely. Thank you for kind of highlighting where OT's role in shared decision-making is. And it, it sounds like it, it still is emerging. And who better to, to learn more about this topic from than Penny Moyers herself? Um, how, how did you first become interested in shared decision-making? And, and why do you think shared decision-making is so important for um, OT practitioners to, to learn more about and try to apply? Well, I've been involved in evidence-based practice for a long time. I wrote um, 
sort of the original guide to OT practice many years ago. I've written some practice guidelines for substance use disorders with Dr. Jenny Virginia Stoffel. I've also co-edited a book on evidence-based practice in healthcare for interprofessional teams with actually my sister, who is a nurse, PhD nurse. And so in that book, we had a chapter on shared decision-making, and there was hardly anything about OT to put in that chapter. So I thought, well, I need to do uh, something about that. So then when I took a job with back with the University of Indianapolis as faculty, um, I decided to create my line of research in patient shared decision-making to see what I could add to the area to help OT make progress. It's important because you're, we're seeing in many, like Medicare criteria, Obamacare, or the health accountability patient, uh, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, that they talk about shared decision-making and the importance of that as part of what's considered good quality care. And so I think it's important for OT to realize that those entities that fund occupational therapy are looking at this very carefully. And tell us more uh, about that, Penny. You mentioned these, these policy, policy shifts that were brought about about the protect, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, um, how that kind of has influenced the importance of engaging in shared decision-making. What, what does that, that mean? Is, uh, does occupational therapy have the opportunity to, to gain more, um, I guess, traction within the, the medical community by uh, applying these principles? Or, or what are the impacts of those policy shifts? Um, I think certainly the impact could be considered a part of quality of care. And, you know, Medicare eventually pays based on your quality. And that is certainly made known to the public, whether you meet those Medicare quality standards. And within that, they talk specifically about patient-centered care. So there is some confusion about how that's alike or different than our client-centered care. Basically, patient-centered care is about not only uh, working with clients about their therapy choices within your discipline, but it also means taking that centeredness to an interprofessional focus where the patient is part of their own um, treatment team. And as a part of it being on that treatment team, that requires that they engage in patient-shared decision-making. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick word. We try to make research more applicable and more consumable for our listeners. And completing the survey that we mention on each episode helps us to do just that. AOTA members are now eligible to receive one contact hour for listening to an episode of our show and completing the survey. The survey is still only three questions long and can be found by following the link in this episode's description. Get yourself a contact hour and help us to improve the show, improve the resources AOTA provides to its clinicians, 
and improve the application of evidence to practice in our field. Now back to the interview. I love that. It, it, it sounds like such an inclusive way to approach intervention and the OT process from uh, beginning to end. Like you mentioned earlier, there are some huge decisions that the patient's occupational therapy practitioners see have to make. Um, and it sounds like shared decision-making can have a huge impact for those patients um, and also for practitioners in uh, interprofessional settings and for our field as a whole. I, I want to ask you more about the clinical application of shared decision-making now. Um, what really are the steps of shared decision-making? How can a practitioner uh, approach this process? Well, here is where I think it integrates nicely with client-centered care, because usually as a part of that process, you've worked collaboratively with your client to develop the treatment goals and objectives. And then the question is, well, what intervention will achieve or help the client achieve those goals and objectives? And not only is it the intervention, but is there research about the frequency of the intervention, you know, how long you have to engage in the intervention, how many times a day, how many times in a week, you know, sort of our version of what is considered dosage. And um, so we need to provide evidence of that as well. Our evidence is variable, so we need to make clear when we're offering this evidence, whether it's research evidence, um, whether it's non-research evidence, such as expert opinion, practice guidelines, those kinds of things. And then once, usually after setting goals, the practitioner kind of has in mind what they should do, right, from their own clinical reasoning and their own expertise and experience. But what they need to do is, is determine what the evidence says about the intervention that they want to use and what the inter evidence says about the dosage for the intervention. And where I sometimes advise people to get that information is looking at the AOTA practice guidelines where there are recommendations based on systematic reviews of evidence. And so if I can use the low vision practice guideline as an example, they give recommendations for several ways of doing an intervention for low vision that requires a different level of um, sort of aggressiveness in the frequency of treatment and in treatment settings. And so then if you map that out and give it to the client, they can see, well, if I choose this more aggressive approach, that's going to require me to come to outpatient therapy two times a week for a month. And, um, and another approach with moderate evidence results might be um, an assessment and an intervention session with the rest of it being assigned as home programs. And maybe you get not as good as an outcome, but it's okay. It's still a strong outcome. And then consequently, the patient can look at that and say, you know, there's no way I have 
transportation to come that often to outpatient therapy. I have that 20% copay with Medicare, so it's too expensive. So I think I'll try the one with the two visits and work um, to set up a home program. And that's a, a wonderful example. I think it, it really illustrates how um, shared decision-making is, is more than just collaborative goal-setting, um, but it's really an opportunity for practitioners to acknowledge the client as the primary driver of their, their own health um, and their own health management, and then you know providing them with the education and encouragement um, that they need to really take control of their own health management and engage in it. Um, what, what other advice or, or recommendations would you um, give the practitioners when they are engaging in shared decision-making? Um, how can they work with their clients to, to inform all those treatment plans? Well, um, there is a form that you can check out. It's on, if you Google the Ottawa um, decision-making um, website, Ottawa Patient Shared Decision-Making, they have a decision-making form where you can take your treatment goals and then write out what the evidence says for each goal and give them a couple of choices. And then it becomes a handout uh, for the patient. I think eventually what we'd like to do as a profession or what I'd like to see us do, um, because if you look at the Ottawa site, they already have decision-making documents available for all kinds of things, but they have very few documents that we can download directly and use in OT. So they're mostly medicine and nursing related. So if we developed our own decision-making worksheets or um, samples that can be used and adapted with patients in people's settings, it would be a lot easier for people to use, and then they wouldn't have to look up the evidence. It would already be in there for them. And I could see, envision those being developed as an addition to our practice guidelines. Yeah, that hearing you explain that, it sounds like a wonderful resource, especially for kind of a, a more emerging topic to have, um, you know, these worksheets that really provide a, a clear process that a practitioner can can follow to to begin to implement shared decision making more often and uh, we'll be sure to link um, that website in uh, our show notes uh, so listeners can check that out um, but there's a blank form that I've been using until the profession so at least uh, practitioners can take the blank form and use it as a format to develop their own sheets that are common in their particular uh, department or the kinds of patients their service tends to work with. And thank you for mentioning that resource. Um, it, it sounds like it's really important for practitioners to be aware of the evidence and to have some knowledge about the evidence so they can use that when engaging in shared decision making. What additional role would you say knowledge translation and implementation play in the topic of shared decision-making? Well, let's start with knowledge translation. And, and well, I, I kind of look at knowledge translation, and this is probably not correct, but 
I think more like a practitioner throughout my career. So I'd probably think of it in terms of implementation science. And obviously, if you are not as a department or as a group of therapists who work together, prepared to offer interventions that you've implemented and have experience with that are evidence-based, then you can't give clients uh, choices because you have to be either able to offer those interventions or refer to other OTs in the community who can offer those interventions and either way is appropriate. But you have to be aware that you can't just offer an intervention that a client chooses if you don't know anything about the intervention, how to implement, how to use it, what kind of equipment you need, how things are documented, and that you've been trained. Um, So you almost have to back up as a department and say, okay, what interventions do we want to offer our clients for our typical goals? What choices can be made? How do we need to be trained to make sure that we know how to do these interventions in the correct way and get them implemented correctly? Absolutely. And that sounds so much like uh, just improving the quality of care that that practitioners provide. Um, Exactly, because maybe they're not using the correct assessment tools that are involved in an intervention, or maybe they're not using the right equipment. And to really implement the evidence, then they have to make sure that they're using the standardized, uh, you know, protocols that might have been developed. Um, And they may be able to develop interventions based on their own quality improvement programs so that they know that they have several interventions they can use that have been well-developed and can run in some choices, and then they can lay those out. So they don't, evidence doesn't always have to be research evidence. And I know I'm probably committing heresy when I say that, but um, there is both research and non-research evidence, and sometimes organizational evidence is important. And that would include quality improvement, quality assurance, program evaluations, financial evaluations. So even that kind of evidence is important as part of patient shared decision making. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I don't think that was uh, too much of a sin to say. Um, And I think that that aspect of clinical expertise really is is a good evidence-based strategy um, that practitioners can implement. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Penny. Um, you gave a great example earlier of how a practitioner could um, use evidence to, to present, you know, different dosages of treatment with that outpatient um, example and making sure that it, it fits the, the needs and, and environment of, of clients. Um, how, how else can a practitioner really best use evidence to explain the pros and cons of intervention options to a client? Well, that's why I like to look at practice guidelines, because often those include what we would call the the strength of the evidence in terms of the kind of recommendation you can make. And, um, and so some things we can say, we don't have a lot of evidence about this, so I can't really make a recommendation for this, but 
I have used it pretty effectively in my own practice and I'm aware of my outcomes and this is what I'm seeing happen when this we use this. But there are some better interventions that have more evidence and here's what those are. And But each one of these, and you might list three interventions, you might say each one of these has pros and cons depending on uh, what you need to happen. So there's this recognition that sometimes patients will choose interventions that have little evidence because it's their preference. And so that's always the downside of patient shared decision-making is you cannot make people choose what we have a lot of evidence for. You need to present it to them and encourage that they choose the interventions with the best evidence but sometimes that just won't meet their preferences. So for example, let's say that we have evidence that an occupation-based intervention for people with stroke would be better to improve their um, coordination or something like that. But maybe you have a client that thinks the only good kind of intervention is exercise. So um, that happens and you can't just, the ultimate goal is what can I get the client to do that has some evidence that will increase, improve the likelihood of a good outcome and meets their preferences rather than forcing an approach that they're not going to really engage in. And that's such a... uh... A relatable phenomenon uh, that that you mentioned and bring up. I think even if an intervention is the gold standard, if a patient doesn't want to use that intervention, they're not going to adhere to it and they're not going to achieve as good of an outcome as maybe an intervention that's doesn't have as strong um, of backing and evidence. Um, but if they're consistent with it, will achieve greater outcomes. Yes, and I know that sometimes we get pretty high on certain kinds of interventions and we say other interventions are not good because they don't meet our philosophy and we have to be careful with that if we have evidence that that true is true that you get better outcomes then you can push that but if we don't have the evidence compared to one that the client prefers then i don't see how we can deny the preference that's a a great point um, what what positive outcomes or gains would you say are associated with using shared decision-making? Well, the research is fairly new, even in medicine and nursing. And unfortunately, most of the research right now shows that it greatly improves patient satisfaction with care. Um, and sometimes it's... Um, increasing patient adherence to their own program because they had a strong role in designing it. Um, We have yet to have research that really shows there's an outcome difference in terms of patient functional performance. Um, So we need more research in that area um, because right now it's mostly focused on satisfaction and um, engagement. And that is nice to hear. I think having good satisfaction and and engagement or adherence to intervention um, is a a great foundation for the evidence base associated with shared decision-making. I 
know myself as a practitioner, and I don't think it's a stretch to say, and most practitioners would feel the same way, but we want our patients to be good or to have positive outcomes for the rest of their life after seeing us. Um, and so an increased adherence and satisfaction uh, definitely um, is, a, is a good sign to helping clients make lasting change um, that goes beyond our treatment. Time. Especially since Medicare publishes satisfaction scores um, with different organizations. So strong satisfaction is also an outcome that is clearly supported by institutions that hire occupational therapists. And that's important to know that because one of the downsides of patient shared decision-making, some therapists believe it takes too much time away from actually implementing um, and getting going with the treatment. And that's particularly a problem in acute care where, where your number of sessions are so limited. And it does take some effort to do patient shared decision making that uh, we need better uh, sort of development of the process for different kinds of settings where people practice. Um, Because in a survey that I did of OTs in the Midwest, most people in acute care said they don't have time for client-centered care, let alone patient-shared decision-making. So there are some drawbacks about time that you might have. And given how strict insurance companies are on how many visits, we're going to have to think of ways to really shorten the process as much as possible. And that's a, a really interesting point you bring up. Um, and, and I think it's a very relatable concern um, that practitioners feel this is a very time consuming process. And there are a lot of demands already on practitioners to meet deadlines for notes and reports. Um, what, what resources or supports would you recommend to practitioners who have that concern? Um, what can they do to, to begin to implement shared decision-making more? Um, I think if they're already doing collaborative goal setting, they could build the intervention shared decision-making part of that right into that process and connect the two. Um, And they could say, okay, now that we've set the goals, here's some possible intervention. So you try to move that very quickly. And we did, um, at the University of Annapolis, we did, um, we used a shared decision-making tool that I talked about for for health, uh, wellness kinds of interventions with a community population. And when they were doing the collaborative goal setting, the patient shared decision-making really did not add much time to that at all. The issue is if you don't have time for patient collaborative goal setting, then, then it's more of an issue. And thank you for mentioning uh, that, that form again. I think that Ottawa patient shared decision-making website and can be a great place to, to start um, to, to maybe put some time in and, and uh, begin to apply shared decision-making. Um, I want to bring up another concern that some practitioners may have. Um, w- w- what would you say to practitioners who are 
skilled at using evidence to inform their treatment planning, um, but are hesitant to share decision-making with consumers who they perceive to have um, a lower health literacy. That's the beauty of the um, developing several kinds of uh, patient decision-making sheets that are written at different levels of education, just like we're starting to do with home programs and other kinds of patient information. I think it's important to not fall back to they're not going to understand, so I'm not going to tell them. Um, Because you really don't know um, what they might be able to understand. And I do also know that many therapists now are using having to use translators because we have patients who speak so many different languages. The same is true there. We, we, We can't just make the decision without trying that they're not going to understand it. So there are ways to make it more clear. You know, it's sort of like you give information um, according to what the patient is processing. And when you ask questions to repeat back or explain what they think they heard, then you can get an idea of what they're able to process. And if they want to know more, you can add more. If they feel that that's plenty, then you can stop at that point. So the key is that you're not going to use it the same way with every patient because of their educational level, their language, their culture, their literacy. So it has to be modified. It's it's can be difficult to do, and it might be clunky when a practitioner is first, you know, trying to to explain a, um, you know, a. a topic like this or an intervention approach without using jargon and in uh, layman's terms. Um, but I would just say, don't be afraid and try. And even if it's clunky and maybe a little awkward, the more practice, the easier it's going to get. Um, and the the better it's going to feel when you are using um, shared decision-making as a, as a practitioner. I mean, you can say things like research has shown that this works and it works and helps you get to this, back to this functional level, which is what you wanted to do in your goals. Um, Research shows that this one doesn't work as well, but it will get you to part of your goals. You know, you can put it in their language or what you see. You're kind of getting that feel for what they're like when you do um, client-centered care and collaborative goal setting. You're getting a feel And if you can explain it in their everyday language of what they want to achieve, that helps even more. That's a great point. And some uh, great examples as well, much more eloquently put than than I could. And uh, OTs are really experts at at meeting patients and clients where they're at. Um, And that includes when when presenting evidence and, and preventing treatment options. I used to work with some physicians and they would explain something and I'm not trying to put down any particular professionals, but it it often would occur when the physicians left the room, the patient would say to me, okay, tell me what they just said. (laughs) So you, so I think OTs that happens a lot and have learned over the years how to put it in lay language. It's almost being a a translator uh, for the medical language. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Penny, what else would you recommend uh, a practitioner could do to improve the way that they use shared decision making? Well, I think what's interesting in the work that I've done is another reason 
people have started to reject perhaps patient shared decision-making before they ever use it is they make assumptions like the literacy assumption, but they might also make the assumption, well, they're cognitively impaired, so they're not going to understand. Or they're children and they're too young to understand. And the literature is starting to show that children actually understand more than you think they will, especially if you've done a good job and the family is present. So between you and the, you know, once the family understands, then um, children can very much be involved. In fact, sometimes they come up with goals and ways that they want to improve that the family and the therapist will not think of. The literature shows that children are able to reach their goals that they set themselves, and they are able to participate on how they want to achieve that or what interventions they they think is helping them or will help them. And so I think that's a, a, an assumption that's being challenged in the research literature now. The other assumption is cognition. And um, there are some patient shared decision-making tools that are in the literature in OT. I don't know if OTs know about them as much, but one is called Talking Mats, M-A-T-S, and where it's sort of like a, a communication board. And you can set up communication about the intervention through pictures and of them doing things, and they can point to which one they'd rather do. And um, there's another one called um, Aid for Occupational Decision Making, I think, A-O-D-C, I think. And it is actually was developed in Japan, and it's more electronic-based. And they have found that people with very low scores on the Minnesota Test of Cognition can actually participate in making decisions. So I think people should watch the literature for these kinds of tools for people with cognitive problems. Absolutely. Thank you for for sharing those tools. And that's such an interesting point that really resonates with me. I think so many of the clients and patients that we see as OT um, practitioners are underestimated in their everyday life. Um, And to provide the best care that we can, it's important for us not to make assumptions and not to underestimate them, uh, but instead to encourage them and empower them. Um, So that's a a powerful message. Thank you. But I think the final area where OTs struggle with patient decision-making is is in the area of safety, not only for people with cognitive problems, but for people with mental health illness. Uh, They may make decisions about their care that you don't think safe. And so the literature is not very clear on how you handle those issues. An excellent point. Thank you, Penny. Um, could you, could you share uh, a personal experience or, or clinical example of when implementing shared decision making um, led to a positive outcome for a client? Um, yeah, um, in the when I was telling you about we we tried this out with um, clients in the community 
who um, wanted to work on their health status or wellness, they often thought the only way that you worked on wellness is through exercise. And you could actually um, target um, interventions related to wellness that have better results than just straight exercise, such as meditation or mindfulness, uh, yoga, um, things like that. And I worked with, we worked with one client who really wasn't aware of those things, but then when he heard that there was a strong research base, he became very interested in using mindfulness. So then we were able to give him resources for that and um, to connect him with the community center where they were having mindfulness groups. That's amazing and a, a wonderful example that I think illustrates a lot of the important principles and pillars of, of shared decision making. Um, Penny, I only have a couple more questions for you now. What additional resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about shared decision making? Um, well, I'm working on a, this is sort of a future resource. I'm working on a scoping review. Um, and, um, I hope to get that published soon, but in addition to that, I think if, um, the, the Ottawa network is really the best, uh, resource, um, and I'm trying to see, give you the resource for the talking mats and the, the electronic version of that. The, it's called the ADOC. It's an iPad application for people with dementia. The uh, ADOC stands for Aid for Decision Making and Occupation Choice. And that's been published in Occupational Therapy International. It was also published in Disability and Rehabilitation um, Journals. So you have those two references. They were written by Tamara, Tamari, T-O-M-O-R-I-K. And um, those are excellent uh resources, especially if you work with a lot of cognitively impaired um, folks. Thank you so much. We'll be sure to link those again in our our episode uh, notes and description. Um, Are there any other resources you'd like to highlight? You can look on Google, but there are some um, websites where different organizations like the Mayo Clinic um, is using um, patient evidence decision making so you can and they've developed some tools that they use in Mayo Clinic. Now they aren't on um, issues related to OT, but it gives you an idea of how those tools are developed and set up in a particular um, organization. Wonderful. Thank you again so much, Penny. I only have one more question for you. This is our golden nugget segment. Oh. <laughs> yes, our, our special question of the day. If you could share one piece of knowledge or recommendation to practitioners, what would you say? Well, I really think that um, evidence-based practice, people learn about it in school now pretty regularly. But I think... Um, 
And I think also think that more OTs are involved interprofessionally on evidence-based practice teams in their own organizations. And, and often that's in the form of quality improvement. And I really think that, unfortunately, a lot of our journals do, in OT do not publish quality improvement studies. There are quality improvement-focused journals, and I would encourage, um, especially uh, OT practitioners, and, and I see this as their practice scholarship is quality improvement. And the more we can share our quality improvement results and how people improved their particular use of an intervention as they've implemented it and then how they've explained that to patients uh, would would be a great sharing of information. We tend to be biased as you can only share research information. And that shows up in the kind of journals we have and what we'll publish. So I would like to see AOTA at least temporarily offer some way of the sharing of quality improvement data and or studies so that people get an idea of how their each uh, other organizations are implementing evidence. That's a, a wonderful nugget and a, a wonderful um, message to, to leave with our listeners and uh, our profession as a whole. Um, thank you again so much for being on the show today, Penny. Uh, it's been a true pleasure uh, speaking with you and learning more about this topic. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to share what I've been learning. And, um, and I would welcome people um, to contact me um, if you want to put my email uh, in the show notes, that would be fine with me. I love interact. Now that I'm getting ready to retire, I want to stay involved with practitioners and hear about what they need help with and what they're trying to accomplish. Thank you. We'll be sure to include your email. And that's such a wonderful opportunity and offer to receive some uh, even closer mentorship and guidance uh, from Penny Moyers. Yeah, love that. Awesome. Um, Penny, uh, before I stop recording, I just wanted to ask if there's anything you wanted to revisit or add now. I, I do think that um, one last thing is I think that as academics, the OT faculty start revising their curriculum, both for entry level practice and for post-professional they need to really start including um, patient shared decision-making, not just as a lecture, but how to do it, the tools to use as ways of implementing evidence-based practice. And the more we train people to do this, because even in medicine, they're not training physicians consistently to use um, patient shared decision-making. So I would like OT to really get a jump on that in their curricula. I love that. Those are two excellent takeaways to um, offer more of that quality improvement research within our field to share that, pursue that more, um, and incorporate this into OT education. Yes. Thank you for giving me the last (laughs) couple.
couple of things to say. <laughs> no problem. No problem. And thank you again so much for your time um, and for sharing your expertise with us, Penny. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.